Hi, I'm Esther, and you are listening to Related Strangers, a podcast exploring the relationships between identity-released sperm donors and their offspring. On this episode, I will delve into the history of donor conception and talk with people who have donated. Stay tuned for next episode, where I will talk with people who have connected with their sperm donors and half-siblings. Before I say anything else, I wanted to give some definitions for words both me and the people I interview will be saying often. Although I will go more into depth with the phrase identity release later, the blanket definition you should know is an identity release donor is a sperm donor whose identity can be procured by the offspring when they turn 18 by contacting their sperm bank. I will also be using phrases donor conception, donor insemination, and artificial insemination, which in this case, not all cases, but in this case, mean using donated sperm and a doctor to get pregnant. Next, this could just be a personal choice, but I will be using the word offspring to describe people who have sperm donors. I choose not to use the word child or children along with the word father because all of those words often connote a relationship with someone who raised you. As you will see, some people do end up in a father-child relationship with their donor, but that is not always the case. I will also use the word social father to describe the father children grew up with who they have no biological connection to. Okay? Let's get started. Donor conception has been around for hundreds of years. Rumor has it the first attempt to artificially inseminate a woman was in 1460 with the wife of King Henry IV of Castile, who was nicknamed the Impotent. Fast forward 200 years and the first record of artificial insemination in a medical institution was done in Pennsylvania on a woman who likely wasn't told she was being inseminated with her doctor's sperm and not her husband's. Sadly, this is a practice that still goes on today with some unethical doctors who use their own sperm on their clients without them knowing. In 1954, the general public was made aware of sperm donation when the British Medical Journal published a report of the successes and statistics of donor conception. This caused public outrage, with people upset over the idea of a non-traditional family. That same year, the Pope declared donor insemination a sin, and a Supreme Court in Illinois ruled that donor insemination should be considered adultery, and therefore the child born out of it should be considered illegitimate. Luckily, only 20 years later, the perception had shifted, with many laws coming into place that acknowledged the social father as having rights to his non-biological child. By the 1970s, commercial sperm donation was becoming popular, with the first sperm bank opening up in 1972. However, all the donations at that time were anonymous to the parents, only getting medical files and no identifying information. Now, Identity release or open ID programs exist at many major sperm banks and clinics. But how did this happen? Why were parents pushing for their children to be able to meet their donor before their children were even born? I spoke to Alice Ruby, executive director of the Sperm Bank of California, the first sperm bank in the world to offer an identity release program. She explained to me a bit of the history behind the program they have now. The identity release program is the oldest program of its kind anywhere in the world, and it allows donor-conceived adults to decide at the time that they're donating that in the future, I'm sorry, it allows allows donors 
to uh, agree at the time that they're donating, but in the future, donor-conceived adults can receive their identity. And that program was started um, because intended parents, people who were planning to have kids with the sperm bank back in 1983, um, were thinking forward that in the future, their children might want to learn more about where they came from. And so that's why we started offering this program. And the reason that the Sperm Bank of California was the first to offer it is because um, most of the people who were using our services at that time, and also still today, uh, were single women and lesbian couples. And since these uh, families weren't going to have a social father, they weren't planning to keep it a secret that they had used donor conception. And this was actually the first population of folks who were not planning to keep it a secret. And so that's why they were thinking, well, we're going to tell our children how they were conceived, which means at some point they're going to ask questions about who the donor is. In 2004, the Sperm Bank of California decided to stop using anonymous donors altogether after seeing how successful the program was. That change was um, part of a long process that we did here at the Sperm Bank. And it started with a lot of education for our donors, providing more information about what the program is and isn't. Um, we did our first release of a donor's identity to a donor-conceived adult in 2001. So over the years, as we got more experience with it, we started to feel more confident that this program can really work. And we started to have information that we could tell the donors, like about a third of the young people are getting their donor's identity. So it, um, participating in the program doesn't mean that all of a sudden all of the families are going to come forward. So that was one thing is that the donors, um, we started being able to give them more evidence-based information about the program, and so it helps them become more comfortable with it. Uh, mm -hmm. At the same time, there was the rise of social media and just less concerns about privacy in general. So I think that the, what happened was the donors who were really concerned about privacy were deciding not to donate at all. And donors mm -hmm. who were less concerned about privacy were still um, choosing to donate, and so they were comfortable with the program. And at, at the same time with all of that, most of our families were looking for donors in the Identity Release Program, so it didn't really make sense for us to keep having anonymous donors. I wanted to speak with some men who had donated themselves to get their perspective. First, I spoke with Tim, who had initially donated anonymously, but left a note in his file saying his offspring could contact him. Not only did this lead to relationships with many of his offspring, but also caused Oregon Health and Science University, where he donated, to begin their very own identity release program. To start off our conversation, Tim told me his motivation behind donating. There are two, two factors that I think uh, had me get involved with, with sperm donation back when I was in college. Um, first was I was really active uh, and, uh, involved in activism, I should say, and very active in the, the lesbian community. And uh, they uh, just in, in discussing and, and hanging out explained how hard it is to have children and, and said it's very challenging to, uh, to find donors. Uh, so that was like, I, that will, I, I suppose I could do that. And uh, the other thing was my brother was also a donor when he was in college. So it, it seemed like a thing to do, so I went ahead and decided to do it. When I asked him why he felt the compulsion to leave a note in his file, he made it clear to me that even though it wasn't a popular opinion at the time, 
he felt as if his offspring had the right to know about him. I was like, they have every right. I mean, even back then, I think I had read somewhere, you know, I, 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 you know, I was very, you know, I, 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 I kind of looked into it. I, you know, I wasn't, I was naive in some ways, but I was also like, I try, this infinite or this being has every right to know who I am. And I didn't really have anything to hide. I didn't feel any, I wasn't doing it for, I don't know. It, you know, I, I just felt that they had a right to know. And so I, I told the oh, it's just, look, here's a letter here's a, a, all these pictures of me as a child and growing up and where I'm at in my life. Give this to every family so that they want to reach me. They can or give it to them when they to their kids when they're 18. I don't care. A few years ago, one of his offspring did reach out to the bank and they were able to come in contact. So well, what my oldest son, Matthew, uh, we call him Matty. Uh, he actually about almost three years ago, uh, reached out to Oregon Health Sciences University, which is where I donated, uh, and requested that uh, you know information about me. Uh, and thankfully, the head of the OHSU Andrology Lab, uh, head of the lab, uh, was progressive and, and open-minded, and uh, he looked into my file, and, and I had left a note and pictures for the uh, for OHSU to give to all the families that that. Should they use me, that they uh, they would have information about me. So they did a lot of searching and tracked me down, uh, and said, "Hey, why don't you come in and sign some? You know, there's some one of your one of your interested in meeting you, and come in and sign legal paperwork, and we'll give them the opportunity to reach out and meet you." Not all donor offspring relationships stand the test of time, or even begin in the first place. But Tim is fortunate enough to have an amazing relationship with his offspring. We just spent Easter together. We had two of two of the two of my kids. So, so I should say, so so Maddie and I. Maddie started the oldest. He hooked me up with uh, Matthew and Laura. So I have two Matthew, two Mats. Um, they're all twenty right now, turning twenty-one this year. But um, they, we all started. We all started hanging out, and we all started. You know, we we did a we got together. Pretty quickly after, well, it took a little bit of time as we got to know, you know, tested the water to see if we wanted to. And now we, we talk all the time and we go out and do things. I brought brought two of them to a family reunion last year, which was super special and super fun. Uh, you know, my family, my whole family, my extended family was very welcoming and they're a great family. Um, and then we just found last October, we found a new, new the newest daughter, the newest addition to the family. Uh, Malia, who's also 20, and she is. She came and stayed with us in December for a few days, and uh, uh, yeah, we're in contact, and she'll, she'll hopefully go to our family reunion this year. And you know, we're just we're an extended family. I mean, we, we all kind of you know recognize that we're family and accepted, and you know, kind of figuring it all out as we go. Next, I wanted to speak with someone who is a newer donor and doesn't know if a relationship with his offspring is something he can look forward to in his future. I spoke with Colin, a donor from New Zealand, who was motivated to donate after he witnessed his sister struggling with her own fertility and knew there are people like her who needed help. My first big question to him was, would he have donated anonymously or was it important that he was identity release? Yeah, uh, no, I don't think I would have. I wouldn't have done it anonymously. Um, and if I had out of ignorance, I think I probably would have tried to correct that over time. The more I've learned about the whole subject, 
Um, there's not to be fair. I mean, e- even even though I live in a jurisdiction that that mandates, um, you know, known identity release, um, there's still not a method. I don't think I don't think the, the clinics still encourage. Uh, I don't. I, you get the d- distinct impression that they don't really want people to think of it much more than just donating blood. Um, so. Yeah, I mean that might that might that's that might be just just my perception, but there's it's I don't I you don't get the uh, impression that donors and recipient families are encouraged to uh, uh, to mingle. It's possibly just a commercial thing. It's um, you know in any brokerage industry, it's not good to necessarily get the uh, the buyer and seller together and cut out the middleman. So. Although Colin only donated a few years ago, so his offspring are far from contacting him, I wanted to know if he was still receptive to them reaching out and how often he thought about the fact that he had people biologically related to him who he didn't actually know. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, it, it, it's been an interesting journey, I guess, of getting my head around the whole thing. I, I, you know, Traditionally, I've always sort of prided myself on being someone who doesn't have trouble making decisions and has a pretty good handle on, um, you know, on my own motivations. And I, I like to think that I know, I've known myself pretty well, but um, this was an interesting journey because... Uh, I was, I guess the first the first kid was born in May of two thousand fourteen. So that was, I mean, that was interesting in itself. It was about two and a half years after I stopped donating. It was, you know, before the that, that's when the first baby was born. And I, I became quite curious, and uh, at that stage, and started thinking. But it's when you start looking online as a donor, when you start looking online for some sort of guidance onto whether how you feel is normal, you don't find a lot of literature out there, and. Uh, so I was sort of feeling curious, but also you, and I don't know if this is how this is part of the, the clinic's plan to make donors feel like this, but you feel they're not your kids, mm-hmm. but they are your kids, but they're not. And so it's a, there's a, it's a strange combination going on. So you, you have these, these paternal feelings, but you feel like you shouldn't have those paternal feelings. And it almost feels like to the point where you start thinking, that's almost a little bit creepy to feel like that about someone else's kids. But you go, they're as much my kids as the three that I live with. One of my biggest fears around the whole issue, and, and this is for me personally, is um, whether the whether the um, families are actually going to disclose. Um, all, all four of the families that I donated to are heterosexual couples, and heterosexual couples have got the... Uh, the lowest rate of disclosure out of all the recipient family types. And I know that one of the, um, this is from feedback from my contact at the clinic, um, she said that one of the recipient mothers was very paranoid about anyone finding out. So I, I, I would suspect she's not going to disclose if that's, I mean, if she's paranoid about people finding out that they're using a donor, then she's probably not going to tell the kids. Colin is right. A lot of heterosexual couples who seek out donated sperm because of infertility issues often don't disclose to their children that they are donor-conceived. This is due to a mix of reasons sometimes the father doesn't even know, or the father has fears of the child feeling like he isn't their real dad. However, as do-it-at-home DNA tests become more popular, a lot of people are discovering later in life that they are donor-conceived. Sometimes they match with unknown siblings or even discover their sperm donors when they receive their results back. When I talked to Alice Ruby before, she mentioned that DNA testing was one big reason the Sperm Bank of California moved away from anonymous donors. The last thing to put in the mix 
um, is the rise of DNA testing. With the rise of DNA testing, we actually felt it was unethical to accept anonymous donors. Because if someone's um, telling us, I don't ever want anyone to know that I did this, and we know there's a possibility they could be identified outside of our program, it feels unethical to still move forward with them. Those donors were promised anonymity, probably for most of those adults, depending on how old they were, how old they are. Their parents, probably most of them have heterosexual parents, and their parents were told, I'm sure, <clears throat> by their doctors, um, potentially by mental health professionals, social workers, um, uh, legal professionals. They were told, don't tell your child how they were conceived. So what does the future of sperm donation look like? Most sperm banks are leaning towards only allowing identity release donors, but will the process become even more transparent? Will prospective parents be able to look at adult photos of the donor? When I asked Alice this, she was unsure, saying that parents could seek out known donors like friends if they wanted to know more about their donor from the get-go. There are some sperm banks that offer adult photos of their donors. Um, we don't do that because we're trying to give our donors some privacy um, until the time at which um, our program goes into effect where we help them um, and help the donor conceive adults with the process. Will there ever be donors that are identifiable early? Well, I know a lot more people, more and more people are seeking out donors who are known to them. We have a program where we can process the semen um, from a known donor and do all the blood testing and everything. Um, to make that a, a, a smooth and, and um, a medically safe process to do. There's also people who do sort of do-it-yourself at home, known donor insemination. I don't know how far um, things will go with, with program donors. Um, it's a little bit complicated because there's, like, there's a lag between when they're donating and when the samples are available. And also, I think a lot of parents are nervous about having the donors um, available. I know that there are some programs like the Donor Sibling Registry where donors who want to be identified early can go and make themselves identifiable. I, for one, am happy to see this shift in sperm donation. With identity release donors, there seems to be more of a genuine interest in helping people, not just the incentive for money. Both the donors I spoke to seemed really happy to have donated and did feel that intense biological connection to their offspring, even if they hadn't met them yet. This sentiment is echoed with donor-conceived people, as you will hear in the next and last installment of this podcast. Thank you all for listening to Related Strangers, and please tune in to next episode, where I will talk with donor-conceived people who have connected with their half-siblings or their donor. I will go across the field to where the wind had ceased to blow that day when sorrow filled the air and all the blackbirds scattered everywhere and you had gone as far as you would go in my reflection you were staring back at me my eyes are mirrors of the dreams you used to see but now I'm fumbling in dark to where the memories are far apart and there I lost the 
forest for the trees in the gloaming of the day the words are darkening away take another look there's no more pages in this book the epilogue was written in the dirt the story's at an end it's time to put away my pen and join you by the earth and there was a tremble in the marrow of my bones distorted and contorted like a worn out megaphone and through the bellow and the bluster I was shaking I was flustered with a body full of star-crossed chromosomes and through the clamor there emerged a single voice a familiar sound I hadn't heard since I was just a boy and all at once my fears were lifted as the echo slowly drifted to the center of the amplifying void and I followed like a child so carefree and so wild take another look there's no more pages in this book the epilogue was written in the dirt the story's at an end it's time to put away 